0: Hey what's up, this is Mr. Bill, welcome to the Mr. Bill podcast. My guest today is Tyler Martins, a.k.a. Sticky Buds. He's a Canadian producer of heavy, funky, groovy bass music. He's also been a major player on the educational side of things for as long as I have and is a well-regarded Ableton expert in his own right. Uh, Speaking of Sticky Buds, we have a a few collabs. Um, We have one called On the Radio that we did a long time ago. We have another one called Hard But Fair. And we have one called Porn Funk, which is on a release of mine called The Collaborative Endeavors. And that will be on Bandcamp along with pretty much all of my other music on June 5th. If you go to my Bandcamp page on June 5th for 24 hours only, I'm gonna release my entire discography. Why am I gonna do that? Because Bandcamp is having a fee-free day on June 5th. What does that mean? That means Bandcamp is not taking fees from artists. So if you buy my music for five bucks, I get five bucks. Uh, Other than PayPal fees, I suppose, because PayPal is not doing the fee-free day. But rather than getting charged two fees and me getting $2.50 out of the five bucks you spend, I get maybe $4.50 or something like that. Um, I'm also streaming production sessions pretty frequently on my Twitch page, so if you want to go over to my Twitch and become a subscriber and get some cool badges and spam my chat with conspiracy theories while I'm making bangers, which seems to be a thing that's happening lately, go to twitch.tv forward slash MrBillsTunes and as always, go to MrBillsTunes.com and sign up to become a hardcore Abletoner, which gives you access to my entire library of tutorials, sample packs, project files, the art of Mr. Bill, the devices series, all of my live streams, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. There's so much shit there and it's honestly really good value if you want to become a better producer that's the place to go in my opinion so uh without further ado uh enjoy the podcast Cool, man. Well, yeah, thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, man. Yeah, finally, after I had interviewed all of my famous DJ friends, <laughs> I can now start interviewing my less famous friends like yourself. It's the bottom of the Corona Barrel <laughs> podcast
1: with Mr. Bill and Sticky Buds.
0: Right. Um, yeah. So I, I, don't know. I didn't want to do these online for a long ass time, which is why I hadn't asked you to do it. Cause I hadn't been to Calgary or you hadn't been to anywhere I was, um, for a long time. Uh, but generally I was sort of like setting a hard rule when I started this
1: podcast of only doing them in person. I think you get like, you get a better interaction, don't you? When, uh, you're kind of face to face, I think it changes the, how the interview goes.
0: For sure. Yeah. I mean, body language is a huge, huge thing, right? Like, um, knowing when the other person wants to talk because you can see them trying to jump in with a point or something like that. Or, I don't know, just like hanging out with someone is more fun as well than chatting online. And, And also like chatting online just comes with technical issues too. Like I was doing a podcast with Adam Neely yesterday or the day before and like my router just was having crazy issues that day and the call completely dropped for like 10 minutes in the middle of it. And then when like we jumped back into the call... Um, it was like difficult to get back to where we were, kind of thing.
1: Yeah, no, that would be annoying for sure. I think everyone's at the mercy of uh, technical limitations right now, since everyone's doing things online and streaming, and yeah, we're all finding the weak points.
0: Yeah, um, I think it's great though that like streaming has become so prevalent. I always thought it was like a sick medium, and and I really, I mean, I don't know if it's, I don't think it's that great of a medium actually for DJ sets. I feel like they should be also reserved for. Um, well, I don't know. I think there's like two, two kind of DJ sets that I like. I like really produced ones, like your Shambhala mixes or like Subtronics now that's what I call rhythm mixes or whatever. Yeah. Or I like going to a club and seeing it live because then it's like the full body like experience of being in front of a sound system and sharing that same experience with hundreds of other people. I think that's also fun. And then the, the reason I like the produced ones is because it's kind of like you're seeing this huge snapshot of what that that producer thinks is their ideal dj set and you can you know if if they've spent like hundreds of hours mixing it in ableton and like producing all the transitions really cleanly and all of that kind of stuff i think it's just nice to sort of hear like the top what what they would consider like a top tier flawless set or whatever and also hear all of their influences and stuff at the same time
1: um yeah have you did you have a chance did you see what i've been doing online with my stream
0: yeah, I saw like you you were doing um, a DJ set with like some green screeny background or something.
1: Yeah, but I mean like on top of that, like kind of more the, the ethos of it is that it's a variety show and I'm not just trying to like play a banging set. It's more of like, it's actually been something I've wanted to do for a long time. I used to work for radio stations back in the day, but uh, I wanted to make like a, a radio show, but I'm, I'm calling it a, a variety show since we're doing it on Twitch and stuff, but showcasing music, talking about music, and I'm still Doing some of the like very highly produced, like I hired a bunch of voice actors. I made like the radio stingers and kind of like the classic ways of of doing a show, and then like doing like some cool, complicated mixes like I usually would, but breaking it up into you know different sections and genres and being a bit more relaxed. And yeah, I think it's a it's a fun format that I'm really stoked on right now. Instead of trying to just to make like the most amazing set because I'm doing it weekly now and I'm really going for it. yeah, it's like a bit more of a fun way to kind of like talk about music and a bit more of an education and showcase and, and like bigging up producers and showing people music that they might not know and like all the the weekly promos and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, that kind of stuff I think is great. Like, I mean, that that's you know, you're taking the streaming platform and using it in a different way than you would just a DJ set at a club, right? Like, yeah. And that's that's what I I've, I've been enjoying about the streaming thing is you see a lot of people take this new format and this new sort of platform that they're maybe not so used to and like using it in their own way because I don't you know DJing in a club has been around for a while like you know 20 or 30 years so that format like there's a lot that's been tried and tested in the in the club format right and it's like we've whittled it down to sort of what works which is yeah playing music through a big sound system and that's kind of you know getting on the mic every now and then or something like that but with streaming it's like we don't really know what, what the potentials are there and like what can work and what can be like, you know, what, what that f- format is best for. But yeah, it's cool to see people doing all sorts of shit with it. Like, I know, it sounds like what you're doing is, is somewhat maybe similar to, I don't know, like the hospital records
1: podcast or the Noisier podcast or something, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like Noisier is definitely showcasing people and stuff. <coughs> and, and then I've really gone, um, you know, I've put a lot of effort in the design of it and like you know invested in having good cameras and my uh artists and animators like I've animated background moving scenes like different scenes and you know I've actually put quite a bit of work into the production of it and I didn't want to start it until it looked amazing uh but that's usually how I go with when I present myself to uh the world like with mixes and things like that you know I'm, I'm always making sure I'm putting forth the best things possible.
0: Yeah, I always find it like <clears throat> cool that you uh, like don't mind investing into things. It seems like um, like every time you've put out an album or put out like a mix or something like that, you don't mind like paying a bunch of people to do voiceover shoutouts and like you know paying people to you know, do little bits and pieces for you. So like the jobs that maybe you can't do or aren't like specifically skilled at, like you pay the the people who are like the best at doing that or whatever to to do it. I'm always totally. I don't know. I'm always like, fuck, do I really want to invest like 50 bucks into this mix (laughs) or like uh, even to me, like that amount of money to invest into a, to a mix or a podcast or something is just like, ah, I don't know if it's worth
1: it. I think it just makes your life so much easier. Like, like to do this, um, uh, to do the, the Twitch show and the streaming show. I mean, I had to learn so many new things, like how to set up cameras, how to like, what cameras to even buy, like what frame rates are, how to, set up green screens in OBS and then like I had my VJ packs of animations that um, my designer had done for me that I was using for shows and then like I learned that they could go into Streamlabs in OBS and they looked amazing but then I'm realizing that like you know, I'm on all Macs and everything and Macs aren't very good for doing visual graphic related things. So like my computer is getting all screwed and then I'm having to like invest in like learning about eGPUs so that I can run these things. And then I'm like building these scenes with my designer and having him, like I have all these different pieces and characters and things that we made, um, but I'm having him merge them all into sets. So basically Streamlabs is only playing one visual piece instead of like, five or six different things, which is really bogging the computer down. So it's just a huge learning curve. But I mean, for me to try and do all of that by myself, like trying to do animations and art, it's just like completely impossible. And it's just, it really takes a load off of you to find people to work with that you gel with. Cause man, there's so many skill sets. It's, it's impossible to do it all. So like, I love investing, you know, my, my, my capital wouldn't, you know, it doesn't have to be a ton too. It's just like really takes the load off you to get help. You know, you can't do everything by yourself.
0: Yeah, for sure. It's also like, um, you're investing in saving your time a little bit as well. Right. Like
1: that's exactly it.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I'm always like, I'm such a time waster. I feel like I'm always like, Oh yeah, I'll learn how to do this thing in blender or whatever. And then it's like three weeks
1: later and I'm like, Oh man, I haven't made any music. (laughs) <laughs> but I mean, you, you invest in like your your management, you know, to sort out your gigs and like those sort of things, right? Because that's not worth your time. And you have yeah. someone who's better at those things and you're happy to pay them to take care of them for you.
0: Yeah, totally. And also people who seem to be like passionate about those things. Um, like some people don't mind jumping in a spreadsheet and doing formulas and making phone calls and sending emails and shit. Totally. And then other other people are like, the thought of doing so just like rids their body with fucking cold sweats and anxiety, you know,
1: <laughs> you get, yeah. And when you're working with passionate people and they're passionate about whatever they're passionate about, you just get such a better product, you know, cause they've spent their life learning whatever they're good at.
0: Right. Right. Um, yeah. Speaking of which, like people doing things that they actually want to do and getting paid for it and all of that stuff. Um, maybe we could like start talking about the economy a little bit. Cause I know that you have some thoughts on this. Sure. Uh, and I guess like a good place to start would be talking about like the ideal economy, right. would sort of be one where people just did exactly what they wanted to do and were somehow compensated for that. And the whole system wasn't like built on the premise of, you know, uh, Inflated debt, currency. Debt and slavery. Yeah, exactly. Pretty much.
1: <laughs> yeah, um, well, I mean, w- yeah. go ahead. Well, like what you're talking about is a free market, which is what we supposedly get told we have, but we don't have free market economics. We have all these massive uh, banks and governments interfering with a, a free market, and we haven't had that in a really long time. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I would describe myself as a volunteerist where you should be able to do whatever you want as long as you're not hurting anyone. Uh, But as far as like the market and economy go, it's been a long, dirty experiment into fiat currencies and and how money works in the world. Uh, And it's quite a a massive topic, but I'm totally happy to talk about it. It's been something that, yeah, I just got super interested in economics and money and currency uh, a long time ago, like maybe 10 years ago, um, a friend of mine gave me this book uh, by a guy named Mike Maloney, and it's called uh, The Investor's Guide to Gold and Silver, I believe is the title. And uh, that kind of set me down a path into learning, you know, how governments work, how central banking works, how how currency goes through it, uh, and how currency is created and the difference between currency and money. And when you go down that path of learning how it all works, it's uh, completely infuriating because you and I and everyone else are being scammed and uh, our hard work and labor, which we have to work to earn currency, uh, that's deflated away every year by terrible monetary and economic policy and, and we pay, uh, pay the price for that and most people don't understand how it works.
0: Right. So the the reason why money is worth less every year is because more money is printed, essentially making all money worth slightly less, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So they deval- devalue the currency by printing more of it. And, uh, you know, you and I don't have the luxury of having a printing press in our basement, but uh, the US government does, the ECB in Europe does, you know, Bank of Japan, all the central banks, have, uh, their own printing presses to keep deficit spending going. They can keep paying for wars. They can keep paying themselves a million dollars a year to waste time. And, uh, yeah, you know, it's like, it's a, it's a financial apartheid is a a funny, well, it's not funny, but it's, uh, quite the expression that Max Kaiser talks about. Who's one of my more favorite, uh, exuberant economists, uh, slash news celebrities that I watch and, uh. Yeah, no, it's it's pretty terrible, but and I and I really don't see people investing the time to learn about it, which is unfortunate cuz I see I see a lot of people fighting about things right now, like humanity as a whole, this is something that affects everyone, and I see a lot of people fighting about trivial shit, you know, like things on the internet, everyone's just like super fired up arguing about this and that, but like no one wants to address one of the biggest fundamental equality, you know, deterrences that we have in the world. And that's like the creation and the control of the money supply and how money is in the world. So it's definitely something that I would encourage people to dive into. And one of the easiest ways is again with, with Mike Maloney, but he switched from writing books and he actually started a really great YouTube channel. Uh, So he made a video series called the hidden secrets of money and it's very entertaining, it's very well done, and it's very eye-opening. And I would definitely recommend everyone, you know, there. I think there's seven episodes of, like, maybe half an hour each. But, man, that is such a worthy investment of your time. Uh, I definitely <coughs> would recommend people check that out.
0: Right. Uh, so what, what do you think it is that if somebody invested, say, I don't know how much time it is to read one of his books or watch one of these uh, YouTube series, like, what's the and you invest your time, what's the end result of investing your time into that other than just being more educated on sort of what's going on with money in the world?
1: Yeah, well, the education is the point, you know, that's going to change how you live your life, you know, maybe you're going to value your time a bit more and realize that maybe like, uh, all the effort that you put into earning currency and stuff isn't well spent on like a high time preference where it's like buying, flashy shoes or like an $80,000 sports car or, or whatever, like, or like a bunch of junk food or wh- whoever knows, but like allocating your capital to savings or growing a business or having a uh, low time preference things where it's like, you're looking at like the bigger scheme of things in the world and like looking way down the road rather than like looking for satisfaction in like the immediate areas. Um, And yeah, and like trying to avoid debt, you know, debt is such a huge one and we are sold debt at every opportunity. And that's how, uh, the banks and the governments and, uh, the corporations control you. They want you to be in debt. They want you to have to make those car and mortgage payments and super high interest credit card payments. And the poorer you are, uh, the worse off you of a deal you get so the the poorest people in society have to go to like payday lenders and stuff who could have like when you look at the annualized percentage rates are like hundreds and thousands of percent of interest and then you look at uh you know you or i who are have a a normal credit card and something it's like between 18 and 25 percent interest but banks and the rich borrow at one percent interest or two percent interest you're a hedge fund manager or you're just someone with like a massive amount of capital, you get opportunities to get uh, basically free money now. Interest rates are so low that you can just get money willy-nilly and uh, buy houses, buy um, businesses, investments, whatever you want. Uh, So the richer you are, the more opportunity you have to exploit the system. Uh, and that's actually called the Cantillion effect, which is another thing that people should look into. And, th- and that's how equality spreads. And this is what we need to work towards changing.
0: Right. It also seems like, um, with credit card stuff and like loans and all of that sort of shit, they almost like make it super fucking complicated just to make it sort of not possible for a lot of people to deal with it. It's the same with contracts, right? Like it, they just put layers of abstraction in a contract I feel like for instance um, <clears throat> and there's a few I mean there's a few reasons why you would do this but my, the general contract you get or the general contract that I see for say like a show or something or like I don't know making music for a film or just something like that it'll start off by sort of saying all right this person like me is now known as the artist and then this person person here is now known as the house and this person here now is now known as the gum the monopoly gumboot or whatever like it's it just starts sort of uh labeling people as things and then when you are sort of halfway through the contract it's like the house pays the monopoly gumboot to the artist one percent of the and and like there's just like this i mean language is already a layer of abstraction between what it is i'm trying to tell you right now and you, me telling you right like the language itself is an abstraction but then it's just like they're putting another abstraction in the language itself.
1: But it's uh, done on purpose, though, right? Like,
0: Well, there's you two, two reasons, I think, they, that it's done. One is uh, because then you could just take any boilerplate contract, change a few names at the top, and then the rest makes sense. And you don't have to go change, like, 50 names in the contract. Um, although, at this point, that doesn't even make sense. Because, I mean, there's digital shit. Totally. Like, you could just change one name at the top and just tell it to format all the other names the same. Um, The other reason is just because they they're they're designing it in such a way that you can't do it by yourself. Like you have to (laughs) hire their other lawyer friend who plays golf with them on the weekends.
1: Totally. I mean, yeah, you're supposed to be anything complicated like that. They want you to be kept in the dark. So you need help. And then so you also can't do it for yourself. But, you know, they want it to be. Oh, sorry, go on. I was just going to say they want it to be complicated. I mean, and it's the exact same thing with, you know, how you went to this tangent is like, that's why uh, bank contracts and credit card contracts and loans and mortgages and everything, it's supposed to be super complicated. And that's why we're not really taught that early in school, you know, how contracts or taxes or money or or currency works you know it's we're supposed to be just happy little tax cattle buying and spending and uh you know they're happy when we stay in that bubble they don't want us to understand behind the scenes right
0: so what, do, what like what do you think is the potential outcome for everybody sort of being the the tax cattle and the the government sort of just inflating money in the way that they are and you know everybody just sort of accruing all this debt and stuff like what, what's the end game for something like that?
1: Uh, well, most, uh, you know, like Austrian-style economists and people who study, believe, will be heading, there's, I guess, a couple different scenarios. One definitely would be like a Weimar-style hyperinflation, like what happened in uh, 1929, I believe, in Germany after World War I, uh, and what's happening in, like, Venezuela right now and other places around the world. And so, like, a hyperinflation is just basically when uh, every day things are getting so much more expensive, uh, because they just continue to inflate and create, uh, currency. So like you're bringing like in, in Weimar and, and Venezuela, uh, they're bringing re- wheelbarrows full of paper money to buy a loaf of bread, you know? So this week bread costs a hundred bucks and next week bread costs a thousand dollars. So that's a, a, a hyperinflation event. So th- Wait, that's actually happening in Venezuela. Oh yeah, totally. There's uh, there's pictures of the the streets of Venezuela are just lined with money because it's w- literally worthless. Um, oh shit! Sure. And yeah, no, that that's been happening for over a year. I think um, the uh, wait. What rem-
0: what has what um what has their government done that's been so silly that it's made their money so worthless?
1: Uh, a lot of people would say socialism. So, uh, it's just mismanagement of government and currency. So like the, the main problem that we have is that governments and financial institutions can collude together. We don't have a free market currency, uh, and we have collusion and we have all this shady shit of people at the top working together to enrich themselves and keep, uh, keep the standard that they have control of the money first. And so, yeah, so it's just like there's too much currency. And then, like, that main problem all these smaller countries are having right now is that they're going up against the U.S. dollar. And the U.S. dollar is the world reserve currency. That's what oil is bought and traded for the majority of the time up until recently when some of the bigger countries have now started to uh, transact in their own currencies like Russia and China. But uh, so it was called the petrodollar, the, the U.S. global reserve currency. But so... Um, yeah, like their, Venezuela's dollar has been massively devalued uh, against the U.S. dollar. And that's happening everywhere in the world right now to every single currency. So every currency in the world has now lost, especially in these last uh, few months since uh, COVID started. And uh, the government's really all started turning out the printing press uh, like the Canadian dollars down like it was down like 10, 15% and same with the Australian dollar. And then like these other countries like Venezuela and Brazil and Argentina and the smaller emerging markets are just been destroyed. But Venezuela was doing terrible uh, a long time ago before this. Right.
0: Um, So at a time like this, if you were uh, sort of into buying and trading money now would be the time to buy a shitload of Canadian dollars and then sell it back at a higher price. 10 or 15% after COVID sort of finishes its cycle and the economy sort of restabilizes if, it, if that ever happens.
1: I mean, the trade would have been like before if you could see the future to, if you were a Canadian or anywhere else in the world, to put all your money into US dollars. And mm-hmm. then once your currency dropped against US dollars, you would get 15% more if you traded it back. But I mean, that trend is going to continue and it, uh, much better use of your currency would have been to put it into gold silver bitcoin for sure
0: so why why is that like what well, i know that you are into investing in uh, metals and crypto what what's the like yeah what's your thought process there i guess
1: yeah i mean like the main takeaway is just it's not controlled by the government it's an actual free market money um, and, cause I, and I guess like the main difference between currency and money is that money retains its value over time. So going back to, uh, you know, the Romans and like gold and silver for one have been used for as money for 5,000 years. So going back to when the Romans, like one gold, whatever denomination, I can't remember what it was called, but one, we we'll just say an ounce, an ounce of gold bought you a really nice toga with, like, the nice trim and, like, really fancy flash toga. And then, you know, come to today's time, one ounce of gold will buy you a very nice suit. So, like, an ounce of gold in Canadian terms is at an all-time high right now. It's around twenty six, twenty seven hundred dollars $2,700 uh, with the premiums. And I think in American dollars, uh, $1,700. But over time, the point being that that gold has kept its purchasing power for you know 5,000 years since it went back when the Egyptians you know started trading uh, in gold and silver right um,
0: the, yeah. the, the thing the thing with crypto though um, like I don't know much about gold and silver but but I feel like crypto is not what you're saying it is like um, for instance in terms of uh, it being not controlled by a government and it being like anonymous and and all of the things that people say that it is or is supposed to be I feel like it's not so for instance the reason I think this um, is because if you like make a transaction on the blockchain as far as I know it is actually possible to follow it back and figure out where that transaction came from. And then also in in terms of like who controls it, I feel like there's these big mining farms like in China. And then I think like, you know, there's people like Roger Ver and stuff like that who just own large, large amounts of Bitcoin and other coins. And essentially if they own the most, they kind of have the biggest market share. And I just, I don't think crypto like solves the problem of human greed. And I feel like I've seen that happening still in the the crypto crypto community and then in on top of that um it's just not as safe like for instance if you have a credit card it's insured right like if if i've made transactions before to companies who then haven't come good on their end of the deal like you know buying i don't know a piece of software or something and then i don't get sent the piece of software or the piece of software doesn't work and then i go like all right well i want a refund and then the company's like, no fuck you. I'm not giving you a refund. So then I just hit up my credit card company and be like, hey, this is a unauthorized transaction, or the transaction was not as described, and then they just refund me. I guess because they, I don't know, somehow have the ability to do that. I'm not really sure how that works, but crypto for sure does not have that. So like, there's a few things that I think are sort of broken with it still, but I hope get figured out eventually.
1: Okay, so first of all, crypto is bullshit. Um, the 99, you know, I mean, I'll just say, I think everything except Bitcoin is garbage. Uh, the majority of every other coins is just a pump and dump scheme. Any of these guys who've created other cryptocurrencies other than Bitcoin, the majority of them are derived from the Bitcoin code. You talk about Roger Ver, who created Bitcoin cash, same thing with Bitcoin SV. And there's all these different things of people trying to sucker you out of your money to make themselves richer, uh, Bitcoin by far has the largest code base, the largest amount of developers, you know, the smartest people in the world are working on this. Uh, I wouldn't put any capital into anything else other than Bitcoin. It has the strongest computer network in the world. Uh, To go over like the mining point, yeah, for sure. It was heavily centralized in China, but that's now diversifying. Like um, I believe Peter Thiel, I, I think he was one of the founders of eBay, Uh, he's making a $500 million mining farm in Texas right now, like basically it's going to work and it's already diversified. But but uh, then doesn't Peter
0: Thiel then just sort of, you know, then he's like the, the centralizer of, of the coins.
1: No. So all he has is a large amount of mining power to solve these cryptographic problems that happen every 10 minutes. So he's going to have more computer hashing power than the average person, meaning he'll get more Bitcoins than the average person as the the reward, because when you solve these uh, cryptographic problems, these blocks, you're rewarded with Bitcoin. That's how new Bitcoin are created. So you can't just uh, print them willy-nilly like we our governments do with the US or Canadian dollar or insert fiat currency here. So there's scarcity, which is one of the main important things to realize that this is actually a money that is created due to math at a fixed outcome. And there's ever only ever going to be 21 million Bitcoins. There'll never be more than that. With Bitcoin, you know, and and you can take the Bitcoin code and you can make Mr. Bill coin and you can make it have a forever limited supply, but no one's going to value it because it doesn't hold these properties of what money is. Um, so you said, uh, you know, talking about if you have a whole bunch of Bitcoin or something that makes you like, basically we call them whales and you can manipulate the market. And yeah, that is happening for sure. Uh, you know, human greed is always going to be something, but it's actually used to the benefit because people who are speculating to try and make money and control the market buy and hold these coins and invest in the infrastructure, invest in the code base and, you know, there's there's the a few sides of it, but there's the people who are just in it just to make more U.S. dollars, you know? Uh, and then there's the people who see the big picture who want a money that's free of government control, free of, you know, uh, terrible policies that create inequality, and they want to get a money that's out of control of the current system. So, like, you know, and, and here's, like, a reason why Bitcoin has an advantage over like gold and silver so like places in like venezuela and places in weimar germany you know in places where persecution happens uh if your country is going down the shithole and you're trying to leave well there's a whole bunch of guys with guns at the border and they're going to search you and they can already confiscate your bank account they can already take your gold and silver because they make you go through a metal detector and whether you got it hidden inside of you or in a briefcase they're going to find it right this is
0: if you're trying to leave germany with gold or silver
1: yeah, or yeah. anywhere, or Venezuela, or right now. Um, you know, you can't go over an international border with more than $10,000 of currency or gold or anything. The government has imposed that restriction that if you're caught with anything more than that in value that you don't declare it, they'll take it from you. And that's happened over and over again. So that's just an an arbitrary rule that the government has decided to impose that they don't want you moving with more than $10,000
0: yeah, like, what benefit does the government have to to for imposing that rule? Uh, well,
1: they don't. They they want to know where the money is. They want to know where the currency is. They want to know who's walking around, who has more than ten thousand dollars. This guy does. Okay, why? Where'd you get that money? You know, you know, it's just like it's a, a control system. So let me let me make the the point is that Bitcoin, you can get on a plane uh, with uh, your private key, a list of twelve or twenty four words. Basically, um, and have that money with you, you know, and you can move uh, across any border that you want and no one can take that from you unless you screw up and, uh, you know, fall for a scam or, you know, and this goes to another one of your points uh, about just being responsible for your own money. So a lot of people like having the fact that if you get ripped off, you can call your credit card company and have a transaction um, reversed or blah, 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 things like that, you know, or pe- lots of people like feeling that they don't have to worry about their currency because it's supposedly in a bank with FDIC insurance and, And yeah, someone's taking care of it for you until, you know, the things collapse and there's a bail-in like happened in Cyprus in 2010 or 2009 or something. Uh, So that was everyone who had more than $100,000 in the bank got, I think, 20 or 30% of uh, their funds taken away, confiscated by the banks and government. Or like in Italy a few years ago when they were having a whole bunch of uh, turmoil, the banks limited it to, uh, I think, like $50 a day you could take out, you know? Like you're not actually in control of your money. People think they are until they're not, and then you get a really rude awakening. And uh, that's coming because the governments have just completely lost control. The system is so built on debt and free money to all the financial institutions and banks and Wall Street that they can never they can never stop quantitative easing, which is what started after the 2008 collapse. The free money has to go forever or like the stock market is done. And because since uh, COVID and the bailout packages, the new bailout packages, printed like three or $4 trillion in new currency that have gone pretty much straight into the markets. And they've given a little bit to us peasants to keep us from rioting in the streets. Uh, but the the return of capital to you and me compared to what wall street and the banks have gotten again. I don't know what the multiple is 20, 30, 50 to one per, I don't know. It's like an absolutely insane amount of money that's gone to them. Um, I looking at my notes here, like anonymous. Yeah. So like, that's actually one of the main benefits of Bitcoin is that it is a blockchain that's available for everyone to, analyze and make sure is real. So it's transparent, which is actually a total plus, because right now we can't see the balance sheets of our governments or financial institutions or anything. Uh, that That's not there for us to see, but it's it's there on Bitcoin. And now whether you're anonymous or not is a different story. That, that matters whether you've signed up to a place like Coinbase or any of the on-ramp institutions and, uh, you know, how the laws work and how our governments are regulating it is that you need to sign up with your driver's license and take a picture and blah, blah, blah. So as soon as you do that and then they send you coins to your wallet you know it's basically like they can start tracking you that way uh but there's things being you know there's different cryptocurrencies and this would be a reason why some say others have value uh that are a bit more elusive in their tracking where you can't tell where uh coins are exchanged and who owns what it's a bit more hidden but that technology is also being built out into bitcoin right now there's Schnorr signatures and Taproot are two things that are being developed right now. Like, it's it's a giant system of so many brilliant people, literally, like the smartest people in the world. They're leaving banks, they're leaving tech companies, they're leaving uh, government, and uh, they're building the next financial system. And then, so it's up to people to educate themselves on why it's important and be a part of that and not just be like, you know, most people just see Bitcoin as being a thing they heard about for a couple of weeks when the price was pumping up to $20,000 in 2017. And then they hear that it crashed. And then they hear about 50,000 other cryptocurrencies. And most people just write it off as a scam. But there's actually something, uh, one of the most important things in human history is happening right now. And that's the development of Bitcoin. And it's the development of a sound money.
0: Right. Yeah, I'm reading a book at the moment. And one of the big things it talks about is a thing called the growth trap and it's talking about how like uh, in a lot of society these systems are built sort of in place um, not to like actually add any value to the system but just to like basically extract money at different points in the system so for instance like banking is similar to that right it's like it's just somebody getting between like your money and, and you or you and a deal that you're trying to make. And then they're just sort of middlemaning the whole thing to extract some money from you. And I guess like a lot of, um, a lot of companies like that, you know, like a, I read an article a few years ago, that was kind of like the middleman is the new sort of guy who's going to make all the money. Sort of like Uber ride right, is a middleman. They, they sort of connect people who want to get driven to people who drive, um, or, you know, like uh, I find a lot of even <coughs> software or not software, like mu- like music companies do this. Uh, I won't name names, but like there's companies where you'll go to their website and it's like you can buy a shitload of plugins that they didn't make there. You can buy a shitload of sample packs that they didn't make there and, and are also available on other websites. And like literally it seems like that website's job is just to house a bunch of shit that you can buy there so they can skim money off the top of each sale made, right?
1: Totally. I mean, that's how a lot of the world works and, and it's kind of referred to as like rent seeking, where you're just like skimming, you know, and pulling uh, capital out of people. But yeah, I mean, there's so many industries that are like that, for sure. And I know exactly what you mean.
0: Yeah, so it's so uh, yeah, I guess the, the reason I made that point was uh, that was kind of seemed like one of the things that you said that sounded like Bitcoin was solving.
1: Yeah. So like there's lots of examples of it, too. So like remittances is is one of the big things where Bitcoin can really shine. So people who work uh, or are from Africa or the Philippines or or wherever, it doesn't matter, but they're coming to North America to work and take uh, currency and send it back to their families because it's just worth so much more there. So the majority of people who do that have to use something like Western Union or through their banks. And both of those uh, options can be like a 20% fee. Like if you if you ever had to send money with Western Union, like the fees they charge is insane. There's so much money to be made by, uh, you know, having control of currency because everyone has to use it. And there's so many choke points where everyone takes a little cut. What Bitcoin can do is that you can buy it and send it directly to your people Uh, so these remittance companies are getting set up and there's still lots of like moving parts, but that's happening. You know, that's just one industry, you know, we could have, you said Uber, you know, so Uber is going to get, uh, replaced by just straight AI, you know, Tesla cars eventually, or something like that, where you can just pay with your cryptocurrency, book a car. There's not going to be people anymore. It will just be like a direct connection of internet money and it'll just do whatever you need.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I could see that happening. Um, speaking of, uh, people like kind of getting cut out of the picture a little bit. Do you think we'll ever go back to um, like a bartering society type system or, or do you think that's kind of behind us as well?
1: Well, I mean, we do sort of have that. It's just because that barter was just made efficient by having currency. So instead of me trading my four fish for your 15 geese or whatever, we d- decided to have a currency that was like accountable and that we could price everything in one thing. So that worked great until we went to like fiat systems. And I mean, it was gold before that. And then it turned into fiat where it's just basically by decree, the government says we're using this money. And after 1971 was when Nixon took America off the last of the gold standards. So basically the currency was just paper. Uh, So it's fine. But the unfortunate thing is there's people at the top who have control and can get We they can get currency for way cheaper than you and I can get currency, and that just leads to like the inequality we find ourselves now. If it all breaks down, which is a you know a possibility in the future, then yeah, maybe we'll go back to some sort of barter. But I mean, people barter still. Like I know people who will go uh, trade their services. They're skilled in one area, and they'll go do some you know a, a. contractor will go build a deck for his friend and his friend's a mechanic so the mechanic like fixes his car whenever he needs it you know people always still still barter yeah for
0: sure uh going back to crypto a little bit um when i first met you or not when i first met you i think when i went to your house once i like saw you using brave and at the time i was like oh why do you use this and i mean i assume it's just because you don't like being tracked and you don't like ads yep uh and then I met Jan obviously who works there. Um, so now I'm a huge, uh, I don't know. I use brave, I guess what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Um, what do you think of BAT as a currency?
1: Uh, it's just another shit coin to me, honestly. (laughs) And I, and I think it would, they'd be well suited to switch over to Bitcoin and get the lightning network going as soon as possible. I mean, do you understand why, why BAT exists? the it's the basic attention token right and so like you're supposed to get money if you view their ads and it's basically their own kind of economy right
0: yeah so i guess the point is that like um you need ads on the internet so people get paid and stuff like that and if you solve that problem by just blocking all ads then it kind of like breaks a shitload of the people who like a bunch of people are supposed to be getting paid then are not getting paid Um, So I guess, yeah, it's just a system in place to sort of fix that. So it's like they show you ads locally, which is safer and then from watching or seeing those local ads, you then get paid in brave attention tokens or basic attention tokens or whatever.
1: Yeah, I'm not saying there's anything... I'm not saying that is a, a shit system or anything. I think that's great because people should have the option if they want to watch ads and get you know some monetization from that. Everyone should be able to have that choice for sure. I'm just saying they chose the wrong currency to use their own uh, shitcoin instead of just using Bitcoin. But, but to their credit, when brave... Uh, came out, Bitcoin wasn't ready to do that sort of thing because if you're transacting on chain, uh, a settlement takes you know between ten minutes and an hour, depending on how much uh, Sats you pay to get the transaction through. But now that the Lightning Network is being developed and is like going full force, the second layer is scaling on top of Bitcoin, that's the sort of thing that Brave could use and actually use a currency that people value. No one gives a crap about bat except to trade it for more bitcoin unfortunately and that you know i'm not trying to be a dick to brave because i love their product and i've been using it since the very start and and i've seen uh from what i believe like a couple years ago the i think the guy who created um brave or maybe I, i don't know if bat and brave are the same creator uh but he was fighting with a whole bunch of bitcoin guys so uh there's unfortunately a lot of like like toxicity gets thrown around in the space a lot but there's a lot of people who fight for whatever reason because basically everyone thinks they're right and everyone else is wrong and that just happens everywhere but uh from my perspective i hope they migrate over to using bitcoin and the lightning network i think that would be to their advantage um so i
0: guess I, i just have like one more question on this whole like money and economics topic and then we can probably move on to some other shit um i guess like i'm just a interested in like what you your suggestion is or what you've done to sort of deal with this entire problem
1: yeah so i mean what you can the only thing you can really do on a personal level is just to choose to opt out of the system so you know look and and i'm not telling anyone to go out and buy gold and silver or bitcoin or whatever I'm telling you to learn the concepts and understand it. And then if you think if it's a good idea to go and do it, but, uh, yeah, I refuse to give my hard earned time stored in money to any of these institutions. So I'm going to find a way to keep that out of their hands. I don't go into debt, you know, I don't do any kind of flagrant, you know, Shit that requires a large amount of debt. I refuse to buy a house because I think the current housing system is a total Ponzi scheme, too. Uh, you know, I'm going to store my hard earned time in a money that I think is valuable and will hold its value. And uh, so I think your personal choices can lead to change because if everyone understands how currency and money work and how they're literally ha- being stolen from, through inflation, through terrible government economic policy, uh, you know, then you can everyone can change the world together. You know, I'm obviously not going to be able to uh, have the government change, but they'll only change when they're forced to. And I mean, if you kind of people talk about game theory, and it's basically just. The way that governments are doing, you know, like China and Russia and all these other countries, they're going to stop wanting to deal in U.S. dollars uh, because the, you know, if if you and I, Bill, were transacting all the time and um, I was selling you goods and you had a printing press at your house just making money every day and you're, you know, you're paying for my labor to come over and paint your walls or whatever, cook you sandwiches, I'd probably get pretty sick of it because I know you're just creating that money under thin air. So countries and people are going to want to go to an exchange that isn't, like, be able to create it like that. And, you know, and that used to be gold. And it still, for the most part, is because central banks still hoard gold and all the central banks are trying to, like, get control of their gold right now. Most of it was kept in the in the U.S. at the Mint, supposedly, and uh, in, in London at their gold storage. Uh, but countries don't trust each other now. So what's going to happen is that, uh, I mean, it's a pain in the ass if if so, say, like, whatever, uh, China wants a billion dollars in oil from Russia, and Russia's like, yeah, we don't want the Chinese yuan, and China doesn't want the ruble, so they want to transact in gold well to transact in a billion dollars of gold requires an army air force uh you know giant planes and guns and all sorts of stuff And you got to fly it across the world and then once it's there you have to verify that it's not filled with tungsten or something else so you have to break out these spectrometers and test it and like what a mess or what's going to happen is that they'll fight it tooth and nail but they're going to have to transact in bitcoin And when, as soon as like a smaller country or a bigger country, who knows, it could be happening right now, but, uh, you know, it, the world is going to change and it's, we're going to have to move to a sound money. And, you know, I'd put my bet on that being Bitcoin. They'll try and do it with gold, but it'll, it'll move to Bitcoin. Fair enough.
0: All right. Let's hard pivot from, uh, monetary systems and economics to, uh, music.
1: Sweet. (laughs) <laughs> That's cool. That, that, that was sweet to talk about, you know, like I, I don't think I've ever really gotten to publicly like chat about that. So I think it's sweet that you'd want to go there, Bill. So big up.
0: Oh, yeah. No, I know it's something that you're passionate about. And it's something I'm interested about as well. And I think like, um, I mean, I don't think the monetary system and how we trade against each other and all of that kind of stuff is like the biggest issue in the world. I think it's a big issue. But I don't think it's the biggest of issues. But I think the biggest of issues is just like inherent human issues, like greed, right? And that's, I mean, I guess I, I just think of it from less of a practical "what can I do now" standpoint, and more of an idealistic oh, "it would be cool if things were like this" standpoint. So I think like it's I don't know, it's something I love talking to you about all the time. Sweet. Yeah. Um, cool. I wanted to talk about uh, like we were talking about sort of DJing and Twitch stuff earlier. Um, and another thing I really like talking to you about is like set preparation and putting together DJ sets. And I know a lot of people listening to this uh, podcast are music producers. Um, and one, one, I guess, issue I have, or not, not so much issue, but something I, I find to be like the most painful part of my job is putting sets together. Like it seems to be this thing that I've just always had an issue with. And other friends of mine, like even Tipper, Um, has also espoused this idea to me like he also thinks it's the the one part of his job that that he can't have fun with and it's always just a giant (coughs) amount of stress for him or whatever Um, but it seems to be something that you are really comfortable doing and and you put out a new set every year for Shambhala and like you have a whole system where you where you put these big intricate crazy Ableton sets together and then you cut it out like render it all out and play it on serato somehow so i guess like i just wanted to talk to you a little bit about your process there and like how you go about about this whole uh set inception to (laughs) finished version of the set type thing
1: Yeah. Nice one. I mean, well, I'll say right off the bat that it's not like a picnic for me too. you know, I sort of dread doing it every year too. I always say that, uh, doing my set at Shambhala is, uh, it's the worst and best time of my life every year, just cause it's so, you know, I put so much, uh, pressure on myself to just create the most coolest set I can. Uh, but yeah, I mean, like I always, um, I was talking about my musical influences a long time ago, and uh in another interview and one of the first guys i ever really got into uh, his name is dj rectangle he's from america somewhere like a really awesome hip-hop dj and uh i never knew this but someone told me in passing one time that he was one of the first djs to start making multi multi multi-track recording mixes in pro tools and it made a lot of sense hearing that like 10-15 years later why I liked him so much is because he was one of the first guys where you were listening and so so he was like a, a hip-hop DJ but it'd have a whatever the rap song was but then the beat would change while the acapella while the vocal was going and then like on the new beat that came in he'd drop another acapella and switch it out and then it was like this layered approach and then he'd be like scratching while the tracks are changing underneath and like it was basically impossible as a human and this was turntable days back then like I'm talking this is two, 2000, 1999, 1998, something like that like Pro Tools was probably just starting um, and it was amazing you know it was pushing creativity to a level that till that point hadn't been possible And I didn't think about it back then, but I realize now that's why I liked it so much. And I think that was such a huge influence on me and on what I really liked doing with music. Because as soon as I started, which was in, you know, I, I bought myself turntables in 2004 and started teaching myself how to DJ. And then I went to music school that same year and learned how to produce from 2004 to 2006. And I just, I started taking the art of DJing and like merging it with production to make this cool hybrid of like starting to do things that weren't possible at the time. Cause when I started, it was still straight vinyl. Um, and then like kind of Serato came out a couple of years later and started doing like digital. And I had like, uh, I actually had a Newmark CDX too, which was the first digital thing I got. And Tipper loves those. He was one of the first guys I saw. Uh, it was a really cool piece of technology, but then unfortunately they were made terribly and every single one in the world broke. It was, uh, it was a giant. It was it was a twelve inch record CD player made by Newmark. It's called the Newmark CDX, and it had this amazing pitch lock on it. And so and like you could scratch on it, and it was sick. It was so cool. And Tipper used to use them all the time in his sets. I haven't seen him play live in a while, so I'm sure he's not using them anymore. But um, yeah, it was a really cool piece of technology. Um, so like you know, this, sorry, that's a bit of a sidetrack. But you know, basically, I just loved being able to take different elements and, you know, it comes down to like stems and instrumentals and acapellas and stems for anyone listening that doesn't know is just pieces of a song, the drums, the bass, the vocal, the effects, the guitar, whatever, Um, taking elements and like playing full versions and then breaking it down into elements and changing the tempo and bringing in, you know, different vocals that are all in the same key. And I mean, you know, harmonic content and mixing harmonically, it has always been something that I've really found important and something that I've always not enjoyed so much, like uh, when it's not done. uh, I just find that people, even if they don't uh, know that music is being mixed harmonically and stuff, if you're doing long mixes and running vocals and instrumentals and all these things together, it just makes for a really enjoyable listening experience. So over the last, um, let's see when I started, yeah, like last 10, 15 years, it's always just been something I've loved to try and excel at and get better and learn new techniques of engineering really cool mixes. And so, like, I've always prepared my sets for the most part. And, um, you know, when Chambla comes around... uh, Uh, all my friends hate me because I'm emailing them every day being like, hey man, can I get the acapella to this song? And yeah, sorry, you bounced it with reverb. Can I get it without reverb? And can I get the guitar like just in this one section? And sorry, you bounced it with like the backing guitar and the main guitar. Can you just send me them separated out so I can, you know, I'll just hear in my head and know what I want to do. And I'm, you know, appreciative of, I'm on so many and I've worked with so many people and labels and, uh, you know, I'm on a lot of promo lists of all sorts of different genres. Uh, so all year and, and all the time, I'm just collecting really cool music and I'm keying it and I'm getting stems and I'm working with people and producing my own music. And uh, then there just comes a time when I get to collate all that and bake it into this super interesting new cake. And then I'll, uh, yeah, I'll make it all in Ableton and then I'll export out the pieces so a piece could be an acapella, like just a clean acapella that eventually merges into an instrumental. And then halfway through that instrumental, the vocal cuts out. And then I'll mix another acapella piece onto that that eventually merges into an instrumental. And then maybe those two things at the end of that track, both at the same time change tempo. And at the end of that tempo change, I do scratching with the the vocal or do some sampling or, or do... Right, so
0: so in this example here <clears throat> where you're saying you'd have a track has one acapella over it halfway through the track the acapella switches maybe some other element comes in over the beat and then the beat switches or something like how would you render all of that stuff out to then dj off two uh turntables in serato like how what would the sort of track rendering and naming look like for that uh for that routine
1: yeah, so I mean, if anyone really wants to look exactly what I'm talking about, if you go to youtube.com slash sticky music, I have a, a YouTube video on there that I did a lecture for a, a school, someone just asked me to talk about what I do. Uh, so there's a StickyBuds advanced DJ set on my YouTube channel, and you can see exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, but so I make Group, So it's like a huge checkerboard long, I basically engineer an entire set with all the tempo changes and all the edits and changes and stuff. And I'm just making like a really complicated puzzle. And I mean, just because of my own standards and because I like to scratch and stuff, like I want to still mix those pieces. I mean, the actual DJing part of it is the easy fun part. I've done all the hard work. I've done all the selecting. I've done all the editing. I've I've done my best to find the absolute cream of the crop of what I can accomplish with these pieces of music. Uh, But then when I'm DJing, you know, there's still like, I'm still doing a bunch of like EQing and mixing and like, you know, I get to like pull the beat out from under the acapella at choice moments and like whatever, jump around and like do things. I'm still doing stuff, but I mean, It would be a bit more boring, but I could just hit play on one Ableton set and just go play the set I made and be like, here's a set. But that's not very entertaining, I think, to people. And because I I still am a turntablist at heart, you know, I still get to do, uh, I I still do some scratching and, and things and put on like a show. But the hard part is definitely the composition of the mix. So in Ableton, I'm making groups. So like, so say it starts with an acapella and maybe like an intro, a big explosion and a bunch of sound effects. Uh, so say that's four channels, uh, four channels of effects, uh, acapella, and then the acapella gets merged with the beat. So in Ableton, that's just the beats under there. Uh, and then halfway, and, and so we'll say that acapella continues halfway through that song. And then at a certain point, that acapella stops and the song is an instrumental from then on. I would take all those effects, the acapella channel and the instrumental group, all of them into one group in Ableton and export all of that as one track. And then, yeah, and then it would be the same for whatever I'm mixing in next. It would start with an acapella and eventually lead into a track
0: or something like that. So at any given time, uh, like 10 channels or something can be sort of grouped into one stereo wave and then you're only ever sort of like mixing one track into one other track, but then you're sort of leaving one deck open for scratching on sort of.
1: Yeah. It's kind of like, there's always like vocals and tracks transitioning. Like usually there's two or three, you know, or four things kind of mixing at the same time, but just on the two, two decks. And then like, and then like doing the system, you know, uh, the acapella in the very first track, can come in four tracks later because it's the same key and it's like you know I started with like mid-tempo and then I'm at drum and bass four tracks later and that same acapella can come in again because I've just like engineered it to do that and uh, yeah so I'm, I'm still I'm mixing like kind of track by track but there's usually there's acapellas playing on either side and then they're just I'll have like uh, literally like a five second window to switch to the next piece and bring that in
0: right so assuming uh so so you you historically since I've known you have toured pretty hard it seemed like you had sort of like a like a world circuit that you would always do where you would just be in Australia at the start of the year and then you'd be doing like Canada sort of in the summer here and and um you know then you'd you'd do like Europe once a year and it seemed like you were just doing one tour in each of these spots every year and then Shambhala was kind of the big commemorative like here's the the best of all of the sets I'd done that year kind of thing and, like, this whole fresh routine thing. Um, That's it. So assuming literally all of that is off the table this year, uh, you're not putting a set together for Shambhala, I assume, this year? Like, you'd uh, be, you be thinking about that sort of now, right, if Shambhala yeah. was
1: um, I actually am going to put one out. So um, the very first live stream I did was on 4.20 on April 20th, and that was with Westwood and uh, Shambhala. And we uh, did a big... Did a big live stream party and I made a big complicated set. Kind of like a weed smokers party, best of sticky buds kind of thing. And uh, yeah, I'm going to release that on, uh, I, I think it's in three weeks, but I'm going to release it on 420 days to Shambhala 2021. Okay. Uh, nice. So I'll put that out. Then, uh, whenever that, I think it's like May 28th or 29th or something like that. Right. Uh, but yeah, I mean like what you said was true. Yeah. I just had it like a nice circuit going all around the world. I started scaling it back a little bit just cause I've did that for literally 10 years of like one, one to four continental tours every year. Uh, when I got, a my solid, love of my life, girlfriend, Marie, and we moved in together, you know, kind of touring changed a little bit. I didn't quite want to be gone for two months at a time all over Eastern Europe and stuff. And I still do my Australian tour every year. Uh, I, I, I'm really grateful I got to do that this year before I literally got home and then everything shut down. Um, but yeah, it's, it's nice. And, and now it's just like my focus is doing the different strains variety show and I get to put all my energy into that now. And yeah, it's great i'm I'm really stoked i'm like more inspired now i think than i have been in a long time
0: right so why why all the weed branding like you have the different strange show you did the 420 show you're going to put your set out 420 days till shambhala like you your name is sticky buds but you're not really that much of a weed smoker right
1: yeah, not anymore. But I mean, I definitely was when I became Sticky Buds. So, right. I mean, my my homies and I were the stoners in high school. We were the ones smoking ounces every week. And on 420, we were rolling up the the two ounce joints to smoke. <laughs> and uh, I had my time in the industry as well. You know, like uh, we used to go work in the trim houses in Canada. And I mean, before before everything kind of started getting legalized in America, which was so amazing that the States started doing it before Canada did. But like all the weed from BC where I grew up used to go, you know, to America that, and a lot of, uh, young kids had their start earning, uh, you know, doing some work for them. And that was a part of my, my life for, you know, the early part of parts of my life. I'm uh, completely legitimate now and, uh, you know, always have been, but, um, <laughs> Yeah, so I was a very adamant smoker, and then, yeah, I I was also a very adamant cigarette smoker, uh, not at the start, but I think when I was 20, oh, I guess, yeah, out of high school when I started working in kitchens, you know, some of my first jobs, I started smoking cigarettes, and then I just found that smoking cigarettes and smoking weed made me feel like shit, um and then I was addicted to cigarettes. I wasn't addicted to weed, so we kind of just lost out. Um, I quit smoking cigarettes. Thankfully, after 15 years, I just had my one year anniversary a couple months ago. Nice. And um, did you
0: quit using Chantix or nicotine no, cold, gum or anything like that, or or dual turkey? Or? I just called turkey, turkey baby. No, nice. no
1: vaping, no nothing. I mean, that was the only way that I was gonna quit. And I mean, it took me. Took me four or five serious two month tries, and then I'd go back out on tour. When I'm at home, it it was easier because I could get in a good workout routine and just be like in my zone. But then I'd go back out into like DJ nightlife and be waiting to play a set or just like, you know, on tour or whatever or like get drunk after my set and just have that one cigarette and it's that one cigarette you can't have you can't have one literally that's the Uh, thing
0: it takes you like a few tries I think to realize that you can't just have one like I mean and that's the thing is like some people can which is like it gets confusing because you see other people like because I've I've quit cigarettes like uh, four or five times now as well and I've like gotten to that point as well where I'm sort of like all right some of my friends can do that. Like they can have that one cigarette and they, they won't go buy cigarettes again. But like, I'm just not of that mindset or personality with almost any drug actually. Like I can't just have like one beer either, you know, like I'm one of those, like as soon as I have one beer, I want to have like fucking 50 beers. Like I, I just, yeah. am, I'm not of of that personality trait where I like, uh, people call it like an addictive personality or whatever. I guess like I'm more in that boat and same with cigarettes. Like it's if I ever have just one or whatever, I'm like, all right, that's it. I'm fucking, I'm a smoker again.
1: I'm the same way, man. Uh, There's been a lot of things in my life that I've just straight avoided because I never wanted to even know if I liked it or not. Uh, But yeah, cigarettes was definitely something I was super addicted to. And it's a really great feeling when you, when you conquer a battle like that. But yeah, it takes time. You definitely have to like learn how your own brain works and like overcome those obstacles. But yeah, man, I'm stoked. And I mean, point being, since I've quit smoking again, I've started to enjoy smoking pot again. Dude, and, me and, too. Yeah, yeah. And um I've been taking CBD actually for years now. That was kind of like, I, I didn't smoke weed and I didn't really like THC, but I loved the CBD. Just like super relaxed me at night. I'd sleep really well. So, I mean, I've been taking CBD tincture for probably like, I don't even know, six or seven years now, probably. Uh, but now that I stopped smoking, I, I, I still don't smoke a ton, but like, I don't know, a couple of times a week, I'll smoke a joint and just chill with Marie and turn the brain off and just like relax. It's Nice.
0: Nice. Um, what are you working on musically? Are you doing like any, working on like an album or are you just sort of like concentrating on sets for the, for the different strange show or what's, what are you doing? Yeah,
1: yeah. uh, I'm feeling like super inspired right now. So I have two collabs. Um, uh, Nick from the Funk Hunters and I are doing a tune and, uh, Caleb and I are doing a new tune, but also I just, uh, signed up to go back to school and fix all the bad habits I have. So I signed up to, uh, Gates producer Dojo, couple weeks ago which uh I've just been loving it man like he's so smart and I really like his teaching style and I definitely have things in my repertoire that I need to fix procrastination and just like not enjoying writing music sometimes like it's felt like work for a lot of time and I think that's just because of the way that I've always written tracks which is trying to do everything at once and always being like okay I need to write my super good track now that everyone's gonna like and like maybe I'll get more gigs for I'm trying to curb that and just like go back to a lot more experimentation and just writing music to write music and just having fun uh so yeah so I've been kind of like going through those motions and then yeah getting really stoked on doing the uh the different strange show this is going to be week two but i guess it'll be my third live stream but it's really fun just like going through my promos and all my talented friends are sending me all this amazing music and then i get to make like radio stingers and like just kind of like take the piss a little bit on kind of like the format and put my own spin on it and yeah i'm just really stoked on music in in general Uh, Um, yeah that's
0: one one thing i think i'm like grateful for in my career or just in the way that I've sort of operated in terms of a producer is at every turn when somebody has been like, oh, we have to do it this way because more people will buy it or we have to do it this way because you'll get the show or like you, we'll ha- like music has to be done in like whatever way. I'm, I'm grateful that I've sort of stuck to my guns with being like, no, fuck that music should be fun like all the time. And because of that, I've just never ever experienced um, this feeling of, like, music being work or this fe- or this feeling of, like, I can't write music because I'm uninspired or anything like that. Because I always, I like, I see music writing, to me, is, like, this really cathartic thing. Like, I do it because I want to chill, like, and relax.
1: Yeah, that's great, man. I wish, I wish I felt like that. See, for me, it was always, like, getting home from one of these tours and having, like, a month of time blocked off before the next one started to be, like, okay, write your next single now. Like, it was just, like, it was always very goal- focused and it's yeah and I mean I still want to put out EPs and stuff and like I'm really proud of the the album and the remix album that came out that I put out two years ago um take a stand but I think yeah I just want to make songs I just want to do all sorts of stuff I, I think that album I'm glad I put out one and I'm sure I'll make an album again you know down the road but I'm definitely just going to make singles and uh just like have a lot more fun with it and have a lot of fun with the radio show Um, yeah if i could suggest anything
0: to anyone listening it's that like even if you are goal focused as a music producer and you're like i have to make uh songs for shows and i have to you know make an ep to put out on this label by this date so i can tour around it which i also do i would say you should also balance that out with at least one day a week just getting in the studio with no goals like just getting in the studio not to be like, I need to learn this new plugin or I need to make this YouTube video or I need to make this, finish this song or whatever. Like I I would say like one day a week, you should just open Ableton with no goals and just click around and just fuck with it. Cause like, that's in my opinion, the most fun thing. Cause a lot of people espouse this same idea of like, oh, music writing used to be fun, but now it's not fun. And if you kind of question them on it, you realize that the reason why is because when they first started, they were treating it as like this more exploratory thing. And now they're treating it more as like a goal-based work thing, right? And I feel like if you just at least give yourself one day a week um, to be back in that exploratory mindset, that can like do a lot of good, you know. It kind of feels like you're a child again, just sort of figuring out all this shit without having too many rules attached to it or too many like I need to get X, Y, Z finished sort of parameters surrounding what you're doing.
1: Yeah. I'm trying to get back to that. I, I know I will, so I'm looking forward to it. Kind of just doing some spring cleaning. I've been going through my sample bank. Like my my sample library was like 400 gigs of just like so many things I never use. Like so, I've just been making best of folders and just deleting so much stuff. Like I deleted 200 gigs of stuff I'd never used last Dude, night.
0: And- I I did the exact same thing the other day. I built a new computer and I was like, I'm not putting my sample library on this computer in the state it's in. So what I did was I put it all on an external hard drive and then moved it over to the new computer and sort of dragged in like folder and sample by by folder and sample by sample, like, um, and named everything nicely and set everything up all nice. And it feels fucking so much better, right, to like go into your environment and be like, shit, everything is like nice and clean.
1: Yeah. And being organized. I mean, like when I did, um, so I hired four different voice actors for the, the show that I'm doing to like make the intros and, and stingers and song transitions. So I had like these four huge vocal sessions and I have like, you know, all the voice actors and like reggae people and jingles. And like, I've worked with so many people giving me shout outs and stuff. I was just like, I kind of have them all in a main Ableton session and I'll go in and I'll pick the pieces out that I need. And it's really cumbersome and it takes forever. So I just spent like an entire day and I edited like 600 vocal dialogue bits and I exported every little piece, every little saying, like, uh, compressed it and EQ'd everything like really nice. And then just like exported every little thing into like each voice actor or artist. Um, own folder and like titled each wave file, what they're saying. And then when I started building the actual stingers for the show, I was just like so fast at grabbing everything. Cause I could like search for exactly what I know that I wanted and everything was just so organized. So I'm just like on a huge mission right now, just to like do that with my entire sample library, know what I have, get rid of all the inefficiencies, just get the best stuff. And then I think I can, you know, cause even just like looking for a crash symbol, for example, I like, Hey, Command F crash in Ableton, and I have seventy five thousand of them, and there's so many, and it's always the same ones that come up at the top, and then it's mixed with like stems from my like multi track recording libraries, and it's just like an absolute mess. So I'm just dude. I,
0: I had the same issue where like I would type Control F crash right, but then it wouldn't even bring up a bunch of good ones. Like for instance, um, I have a sample pack by Emperor, who's an amazing producer. Yeah, And, totally. and all of his uh, samples are called like Evac One, Evac Two evac three like and it's all just from this big pack but like when it says like evac one or whatever that is in a subfolder in his pack called like kicks or something so it's like you can get to the shit you need it's just you have to do it through the folders you can't do it by searching for the samples but the other thing i noticed is after i cleaned up all my stuff i made a drum and bass tune that sounded like legitimately awesome using like emperor samples and and you know samples by tech vision and just like really good producers who make really sick sounds for those styles I was able to throw together a drum and bass tune in like 30 minutes nice and then I was kind of like oh man I don't like I don't feel like I've worked hard enough for it because like (laughs) you apply value to to effort invested right like if you invest a shitload of effort into something you're, you're you're instantly more susceptible to thinking that that's more valuable and that that's like a better thing that you've done um and I find like making music is almost too easy now that I can just grab samples and all that shit. So now I've gone, what that makes me now want to do is just make more sounds from scratch, I guess. Cause right. I'm like, I can see everything there. I can easily just grab it, but then it makes my brain sort of go well, like, oh, maybe we should make more sounds.
1: And Yeah. I think, uh, you know, whatever makes you happy or, or stoked at the end of the day is the right way to go about it.
0: Yeah, I would agree. Fuck yeah, man. Well, um, yeah, we should, we could probably wrap up there if if you're comfortable with that. Did you want to mention anything else or talk about anything else?
1: Oh uh, no, man, I'm I'm super stoked. It's been really nice to chat with you, homie, and I'm really happy about everything we covered. You know, two two things that I think are important: <laughs> economics and having fun with music. Yeah,
0: totally. <laughs> well, fuck yeah, man. Uh, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it
1: yeah thanks homie i'm proud i'm proud of you i'm proud to see you doing this and uh, i've listened to a bunch of the podcasts i've always really really enjoyed them and i'm stoked to always see you growing and, and kicking ass we've been friends for a long time
0: yeah man like 10 10 years now or something nice. close well,
1: close to keep being awesome homie thanks for having me on the show
0: yeah cheers man have a good one
1: you too thank you for listening to the mr bill podcast thank you for listening to the mr. Bill podcast. <laughs>